0: Hello, and welcome to Engage with Eagle Forum, a podcast to encourage the modern day woman and her vital role in shaping society. I'm one of your hosts, Kirsten Hassler, and I'm the executive director of Eagle Forum. Today, I'm joined by my friend, an Eagle Forum board member, Glenn McKay. Hello. Today, we have with us Dr. Erin Brewer. Uh, Dr. Brewer grew up in Salt Lake City and earned a bachelor's degree in communication and cognitive science from Hampshire College in Massachusetts. She went on to earn a master's degree and PhD at Utah State University in instructional technology and learning science. Dr. Brewer has a very powerful story. She developed gender dysphoria in first grade and is now an advocate against the harms of the transgender movement. She is a wife and mother of two and lives in Utah. Erin, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited that you're covering
1: this um, important issue.
2: Well, there are so many issues that we could address regarding the transgender movement. You know, we're seeing everything um, from lawsuits between divorced parents who disagree over their child's sex to disagreements over sports competitions because you've got biological males, for, uh, females forced to compete against biological males. But we just want to focus this episode on the basics and what you've learned from your experiences. So will you just start from the beginning and, and tell us what, was you, what you went through as a child who struggled with her identity?
1: Sure. And um, I want to point out that this is something I never thought that I would talk publicly about. It's um, and the only reason that I decided to is because I started seeing what was happening with the transgender movement. And it bothered me so much that I felt almost an obligation to share my experience. So um, when I was in kindergarten, I was a perfectly content little kid, um, didn't have any kind of gender dysphoria. And then between um, first in kindergarten and first grade, I was um, pretty brutally sexually assaulted. And um, I can look back now and recognize what happened, but at the time I didn't realize that I developed that, what they would now call a trans identity as a way to protect myself. Because um, in my little girl brain, I thought that the reason I had been sexually assaulted was because I was a girl And if I was a boy, that it wouldn't happen. And so I started back to school in first grade insisting that I was a boy and doing everything that I could Mm -hmm. to convince my teachers and my classmates and my parents and pretty much anybody around me that I was a boy. Mm -hmm. And I became um, really aggressive, both verbally and physically, because I was trying to model what I thought a boy was. So it was sort of like I was looking at the boys and trying to do what they did only more so because I figured if I did it well enough, then everybody would say, oh, oh, she's a boy and and would accept mm-hmm. me as a boy. And thankfully, I lived in a time where people understood biological reality and none of my teachers Um, None of my classmates, my parents didn't say, oh, she must be born in the wrong body and really a boy um, because that's what's happening to children now. Instead, my teacher referred me to the school psychologist who met with me and sort of did an assessment. And at the time, I was so filled with shame and guilt and disgust about the sexual assault that I didn't mention it. I was, you know, part of me had decided like, Aaron, who was sexually assaulted, I'm not her anymore. I'm now this boy who's not vulnerable. And so when I talked to the school psychologist, I talked as if Aaron, that little girl, was actually not me. Was mm-hmm. And, and I, didn't, I didn't really accept her as being me. And so even though my mom and my brother and my stepdad knew about the sexual assault, I didn't bring it up when I met with the school psychologist. I just kept saying, you know, I'm a boy, I'm a boy. I want you to treat me like a boy i just want you to let me be a boy Um, and and she recognized that as as a as a mental health issue and wrote up a plan to help my parents and my teachers um, help me to accept myself as a girl and i'm so thankful for that because i can't imagine if i had grown up today and the therapist had said oh you must actually a boy let's go ahead and call you by timothy which was the name i wanted to be called go ahead and use the boy's bathroom. We'll dress you like a boy and use boy pronouns. Because if that had happened, then as I got older and I continued in therapy, I never would have gotten a chance to address the sexual assault that happened in the first place. That would have just been buried. And that sexual assault had such a profound impact on me that I am thankful that I got the chance to work through in therapy, work through some of that trauma and to um, find a way to accept myself as a girl and to realize that insisting I was a boy was an unhealthy coping mechanism and that there were ways that I could keep myself safe even though I was a girl and that it was okay to be a girl and there wasn't anything shameful or um, disgusting about it, which is kind of what I thought. And, And the other thing is, is that I had such incredible self-hatred um, when I was impersonating a boy and um, especially towards my genitals because I felt like they were what betrayed me. And so there were times when I would just get in sort of a rage and I would take a rock and just pound my genitals until they bled because I was just, I was so angry. And The new trans movement would say that that self-hatred is okay and a normal developmental path instead of saying, whoa, that kind of self-harm indicates
0: a serious mental health issue that needs to be dealt with. And it's just so hard for any child to have to go through. And until recently, you were actually a lifelong Democrat a delegate for Bernie Sanders in the 2016 election, a donor to LGBTQ owner organizations, and now you're not. So what changed? Yeah, it's it's
1: it's a huge transformation. And it's so funny on Facebook, um, you know, a year ago today or four years ago today will pop up and you'll see the posts that you made, you know, a couple years ago. And I just look at it and I'm like, whoa, <laughs> so, so different. Um, and so I was, I was very much invested as a, as a leftist, a liberal, a Democrat my whole life, um, very committed to, to that identity, I guess, um, to defining myself in that way and to those causes. And like you said, I donated to the local LGBT organization, Equality Utah. And that's actually what ended up uh, facilitating my about-face um, about, I guess it was about a, a year, and a half ago, I got an email, or I got a letter in the mail from Equality Utah. And the letter was talking about a new initiative that they were going to start to prevent to stop conversion therapy here in utah to ban what they called conversion therapy when i first started reading it i thought oh yeah conversion therapy we, we should definitely should ban that i'm so glad they're doing this but then as i read further down the letter i just got this sinking feeling as i realized that what they were going to ban was the very therapy that helped me mm-hmm. resolve my trans identity when i was a little girl and i read it a couple of times i thought that can't be right um, and so I tried to contact the director of Equality Utah and raise some questions and he actually blocked me. So I was trying to connect with him on Facebook and he blocked me and I was like, what? And so I decided to go to an event that Equality was U- Utah was holding to see if I could talk to him personally because I kept thinking, I must, I must not be getting this. There must be something I'm not understanding here. So I went to an event at the public library and he had security remove me and I thought, what's going on here what is happening here um, and so um, and I can't remember it was around the same time that I decided that I was going to um, testify at the state legislature about my experience because I felt like people must just not be understanding they must just be confused and if I shared my story that the other side would say oh <laughs> okay we've right. got this right. wrong right. Um, and and the way they've the way they've done this the way they've um defined conversion therapy for people who don't know um most people think of conversion therapy as something like electroshock therapy or um lobotomy some sometimes beatings doing horrible things to people to try to get them to not be gay anymore
2: right
1: which actually we don't do anymore it's already illegal to do those things to people (laughs) so we don't really have to worry about that but what they're including now is that therapists have to affirm a person's sexual identity and um, sexual orientation and gender identity. So it's actually, it's not conversion therapy. It's actually affirmative therapy. They're requiring therapists to do. So in my case, there are a couple of things that, that it impacted. And I forgot to tell you that when I, you know, part of my trans identity when I was younger was to have girlfriends. Um, because i thought well i 'm a boy i 'm going to have a girlfriend, and so I cultivated these same sex relationships and acted as if I were the boy in the relationships and part of this conversion therapy ban would be would be to require a therapist to affirm that sexual orientation that I had as a child, even though I was just a little kid. I was way too young to be having sexual relationships, and so for them to have to affirm that when actually they should probably be saying, wait a minute, you're just a little kid. Why are you already involved in sexual relationships? Right. So that's one aspect of it. And the other aspect of it is requiring therapists to affirm a child's transgender identity. And so my school psychologist couldn't have said, Aaron thinks she's a boy. We need to work with her. They would have to say, it turns out Aaron is a boy. Let's accommodate her as if she's a boy and that's that 's just incredibly damaging to kids, um, and so i started I, I went and testified, and what happened in Utah is they ended up changing the legislation so that it was really just targeting that that really cruel kind of therapy that really doesn 't happen anymore anyway and Equality Utah ended up pulling the bill because they were so unhappy about how it had changed, and then the governor took the um, address the it's called DOPAL, the Division of Licensing and Professional Services. I think, so it's basically the professional licensing board here in Utah, and had them enact the, the therapy ban. So they they went around the legislative process in order to get this enacted, which I find really um, incredibly concerning. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and and it's very concerning to me that these conversion therapy bans are going are are being enacted not just in the United States, but all over the the world. And the United Nations actually, um, they have a special expert, they call him an expert on sexual orientation and gender identity. He has recently written a a report where he's suggesting that um, something like a parent not affirming their child would be considered conversion therapy. Or if a teacher at school Uses the wrong, you know, the the non-preferred pronouns of a child that would be considered conversion therapy, and he compares it to to like date um, gang rape, and electroshock therapy, and starving someone to death. And so this this whole movement is is going to end up removing parental rights, and yeah. it's and we already see it happening. Um, as you mentioned, there's the case where. There's a dad in Texas, Jeff Younger, who's trying to fight to prevent his ex-wife from medically transitioning his son. And there's a case in Canada, and actually the hearing is today, where a dad lost his parental authority to stop his 14-year-old daughter from getting testosterone. She is now getting testosterone. She's been on testosterone for over a year now. And now that the dad is being charged with contempt of court, for speaking out about his story. So this is an incredibly concerning movement. And for those who don't know what happens, um, once a child is affirmed socially, so in my case, told, yes, indeed, you're a boy, um, you can use the boy's locker room, you can dress like a boy and we'll call you by the boy's name. Um, Shortly thereafter, they tend to put them on puberty blockers. So as young as eight years old, they'll put them on medication that basically arrests their development and keeps them in that childlike state, prevents them from um, going into puberty. So basically they're inducing developmental delays in these kids. And then in some cases, they're immediately putting these kids on cross-sex hormones which um, causes them infertility and a whole slew of other medical issues. And then there are cases as young as 13 where girls are getting their breasts amputated. And so What happens when you start affirming a child is, first of all, you tell them that the belief that they have about themselves, that they're inherently flawed, is accurate, that they should feel that way, that they should run away from themselves and assume this new identity, and that it's normal. And then you suppress their development, which is both physical and cognitive. And on top of that, you give them the opposite sex hormones that causes their body to start developing to developing sex characteristics of the opposite sex. Which, um, if if a child isn't already um, having some cognitive difficulties already, I, this is just going to compound any mental health issues they already have. Um, and it's just it's shocking to me that they would allow this to happen. That that this can happen in the United States or anywhere. Right.
2: Right. Well, and the irony is that um, in this whole national conversation, you know, uh, conservatives or simply those who would resist this kind of behavior and action are deemed the, you know, violent ones or the, right. So, you know, we want you to know, we're really grateful for the sacrifices that you've personally made to talk about the real issues here, and we know it's taken bravery and courage, and you've gotten a lot of resistance and nasty pushback. So will you talk to our listeners about that? You know, what has it been like to speak out?
1: Yeah, it's, um, I had no idea. Um, One of the reasons I always thought of myself as a liberal was because I care about children. Mm -hmm. And so I assumed that when people found out about this, when people on the left found out about this, they would automatically try to stop it. They would say, of course, this is horrible. But instead, um, I found that I was completely rejected by friends and family. Um, I was uh, threatened. There were people who said that they were gonna try and get me kicked out of my housing. They were gonna try and get me fired. There were people who were making physical threats against me, um, which which I've never experienced anything quite like that. I actually had the mother of a local trans activist sent me email and contact information for her son because she was worried about my safety and she wanted me to contact the police. Um, I have been told by local um, activists that they violently hate me. And one day my my 15 year old son came home from school. He had been waiting at a bus stop and someone came up to him and said, you know, a lot of us wanna kill your mom. Oh my gosh. Um, so this is really serious kind of intimidation that happens, and I had no idea. Um, again, another reason why I always assumed a sort of affiliated as a liberal is that um, wanting to respect other people's beliefs and feeling like it's really important for lots of people to have their stories told. And I, as I've as I've you know come out and talking about this more and more, I found that my whole understanding of the liberal party the leftist the democratic party was completely wrong that this is not the party of tolerance it is not the party of acceptance Um, they don't care about children they don't care about women they don't care about marginalized and minorities they have a very clear agenda which is undermining parental authority and really doing damage to kids and and it really—it's like my entire foundation crumbled when I started to realize that my understanding of of the ideology I had always thought I believed was completely wrong. Um, it was—it was really quite. Um, it it uh, you know it just sucked the wind out of me. And I just I still just wonder how how was I so wrong all these years? How was I so completely deceived? Um, and it it's really been kind of a sense of reckoning because I used to volunteer for Planned Parenthood. I used to donate to them. Um, I used to support these organizations and their whole goal is really to sexualize and objectify children, to uh, undermine parental authority, to split apart families. And it's been really um, sobering the more I recognize how I was a part of that.
2: Why why do you think that is? I mean, I can't imagine that it's a bunch of, you know, that these people, individuals, these leftists sit around and think, oh, we're gonna, you know, destroy children. You know, what is it that motivates them? What do you think?
1: I have a couple of theories. One is I really think that this is a push towards Marxism. The um, And if you can split apart families, then right. it's easier to impose something like Marxism. In Marxism, each person is the same. There's not the sanctity of the family. And so I think that that's part of the motivation. Um, I really think that there's a motivation by um, pedophilia, pedophiliacs who are trying to normalize pedophilia. And I really hate to to think this, because it sounds really conspiracy theorist, but um, I really think part of it is a movement towards um, promoting pedophilia, the acceptance of, they call it minor attracted persons or MAPs as a sexual orientation. And we now have protections. This, this whole therapy ban actually requires therapists to accept a person's sexual orientation. And we have legislation that requires businesses to accept people's sexual orientation. So, so if they can um, convince enough people that uh, being a pedophilia, pedophiliac, a minor attracted person is a sexual orientation, then that person actually um, is protected That because of their sexual orientation, which is horrifying to me. Um, And and I think part of this started with birth control pills, and I never made the connection before. Um, When I was young, I was sexually active at a very early age. I went into Planned Parenthood between the ages of 13 and 14 and was able to get um, birth control pills without parental permission or consent or even um, knowledge. I was just able to go in and get those birth control pills. And it never even occurred to me at the time that taking them might not be a good idea, especially for for a child who was still going through puberty. It never even occurred to me. But now I look back and I think, how on earth was it that I was able to access um, hormones that potentially could really cause damage to my body? Um, And and now we're seeing that narrative pushed even further. So now we're seeing um, Planned Parenthood is now giving out Uh, cross-sex hormones, puberty blockers and there's a push to lower, you know, to make it so that children can access all kinds of medical treatments, abortion, birth control pills, cross-sex hormones, puberty blockers, vaccines without parental permission. And so if we can normalize the idea that children can do medical consent and don't need parents for that, then it's not that much further to normalize sexual consent. And when you look at what Planned Parenthood the kind of lessons, the kind of materials they're pushing. And a lot of these LGBTQ organizations, it's all about normalizing sex. Mm -hmm. And, and we actually have, there's, there's, um, curricula in the school now that's promoting children to, um, masturbate as early as kindergarten and, and teaching them that sex is just another form of, uh, of pleasure and, and really disconnecting it from any kind of relationship. And so some people like it's and it's even hard for me to understand how I've changed so much, but it was sort of like when I started to realize the damage that the transgender narrative causes kids and that and how harmful it is and the fact that they're encouraging these kids to self harm, basically. Um, And then, and then trying to connect it. Okay, so, so how did we get here? We got here from the LGBT movement, which said that um, sexual orientation is fixed, and that you can't change that. And as I started to speak out about my experience, like it occurred to me, wait a minute, (laughs) according to them, I should be a lesbian now and I'm not. And so There's something that's, you know, there's a hole in that somewhere. That's not always the case. You're not necessarily born that way and can't change. And so from there, I started thinking about, wait a minute, why was I getting birth control pills when I was a little kid? Why was it that nobody at the Planned Parenthood clinic said, wait a minute, maybe you shouldn't be having sex. That's probably not a good idea. Um, And so it's sort of like, there's just sort of been this like um, every, you know, every issue I look at it, it's like a new lens that I'm seeing it through. And it just is incredibly concerning to me that um, those on the left are, are, are so hostile towards someone like me that, um, I don't know if, if, if you and your listeners um, are aware of what happened to J.K. Rowling, mm-hmm. uh, the author of the yes. Harry Potter books, but she simply said that biology is real. And for that, she's attacked. So they no, longer, they no longer are just suggesting that transgender rights should be respected. They're saying that it's possible for someone to be born in the wrong body and that we have to accept somebody else's feelings rather than reality. And when you have a group of people who is able to um, convince people to discard reality and truth and to accept lies, They have complete control.
2: And our president, or former president, uh, Uni Smith, president emeritus, she always says this whole movement, it's the ultimate rebellion against the creator.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned that because um, I was an atheist for most of my life. And um, I actually was invited to speak at an Eagle Forum conference. And it's funny because I really, I really, Kind of debated with myself whether or not to accept the invitation. Because when I was growing up, the Eagle Forum was one of the evils in my home. (laughs) Um, My mom would scream at the TV when anybody from the Eagle Forum was on the news. Um, I really was indoctrinated to believe that they were representing all the ills in society. So I sort of was, and I was kind of scared because I was like, here I am, this atheist, this liberal <laughs> kind of felt like going into a you know hostile definitely- environment or something. I wasn't sure. I was really, really nervous and I got there and I was welcomed so warmly and the people were so wonderful and I was accepted for who I am and just, it was like, I found a family. It was the first time in my life where I just felt this incredible sense of belonging. And I was looking around at the people and thinking, I want to be like them. I want to, I want to be like them. They're, they're smart. They're um, passionate. They're um, committed to taking care of children. But I thought I can't be like them. I have so much, like I'm, I'm dirty. I'm unlovable. God, God doesn't want my kind (laughs) is what I thought. (laughs) And, um, And I came home after the conference and I was sitting on my bed and there were a few things that, that there were a few people at the conference who sat me down and, and just gave me little messages like, um, you know, God loves you. And I'd be like, nah, he loves you. (laughs) He doesn't love me. (laughs) Um, and they'd say, yes, he does. He loves you. And then, um, when I, during a question answer period, um, one of the Becky Gerritsen from um, Eagle Forum said something like, Aaron, you may not believe in God, but I know he believes in you. And so I got home and I was just filled with this sense of they're right. They are right. I know they're right. They have the truth. And so I, and I had, I had this debate going. I felt like I had, you know, sort of my childhood self saying, um, you know, they're, they're the bad guys. They're going to reject you they are They don't care about people. And then I had, um, I felt like God was really speaking to me saying, come, come to me, come join us, come be part of this family. Um, you're welcome. Yes. And I made the decision to become a Christian. I reached out and I said, Jesus, will you please save me? Will you please accept me? And, um, it was a really, uh, I just felt the sense of acceptance and love and warmth that I had never felt before. And I realized that all my life I had had so many troubles. I had had just, there were so many things in my life that didn't go well, that I got into trouble, that I got in bad relationships. Um, At one point in high school, I was prostituting. Um, I made pornography. And I know now that if I had had God in my life and I had been following the Bible, that I wouldn't have made all those mistakes. I would have had some foundation. And I probably wouldn't have even had gender dysphoria when I was a kid. I wouldn't have assumed that there was something wrong with me when that sexual assault happened. I would have reached out to God for comfort and support. And I would have had a community to help me work through my trauma. And um, I'm kind of emotional now but it's in a good way because I realize now that I do have a family and that you you asked a little bit about how difficult it's been speaking out about these issues. And as hard as it is um, getting threats and knowing that there are people who have really bad intentions towards you, I just feel completely safe because... I know whatever happens that, that I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And I almost have a sense of, it's not that I'm glad that the sexual assault happened and that I, I went through all that difficulty, but now I understand that maybe there was a purpose. Mm -hmm. And if I can use that to help others, then that just, that makes me feel like everything was worthwhile. And I just pray every morning, asking God to guide me and to um, allow me to speak to people so that they can understand that this trans ideology, it's not about tolerance, it's not about love, it's not about acceptance, it's really about control and undermining our families and ultimately undermining our government and, as you said, undermining God. Yeah,
2: well, I just appreciate you sharing that, and you're exactly right, that God is not the giver or the doer of the bad things in our lives but he is the redeemer and he can take all of those things and work them for our good and ultimately for his glory and so we're just humbled to hear your story and just so thankful for what you're doing and how you're allowing him to use you in this in this space
0: mm-hmm. yeah i don't think there was a dry eye last year at the <laughs> council. i vividly remember becky standing yes. up and telling you You know, God is doing things through you, (laughs) which it's so cool to be a witness of.
1: Yeah. And it's, it really is. um, I, I honestly, I had, well, and I think back about it because I used to say, I don't believe in God. Mm -hmm. I tell people, you know, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in that. But I realized after my conversion that I actually did believe in God. And I was really, really angry at God because I didn't understand why he let that happened to me when I was a little girl. I mean, that should never happen to anybody. And I blamed God for that. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people blame God when something really bad happens. And what I realized is that it's the evil that allows that to happen. And when you reject God, you just give more power to that evil. And that has been a huge realization for me. And I sort of have this sense of, um, that little girl in me that was so damaged just being held by God right now.
0: Yes. It's a sweet, <laughs> sweet picture to think about. Okay, so we're going to shift gears a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> 360. But let's talk about some of the specifics mm. of the terminology and what actually is happening so that our listeners know when they encounter these terms what's going on here. Yeah. All right. So when it comes to terminology, what is the difference between gender and sex?
1: That is a really good question. And I actually interviewed Ken Zucker, who is one of the um, sort of world experts on gender, and asked him that. And, and there really isn't a definition. I think gender is just a term that is used uh, to somehow empower this idea of, of um somebody being able to be born in the wrong body Um, what the trans activists will say initially is that sex is the um you know the chromosomes the dna and gender is how you feel whether you feel as if you're a male or female however they they say that but then they say things like um if a boy believes he's a girl his penis is actually a female penis or if, um, if, I, if I believe that I'm a boy, then I should be able to get my birth certificate changed to reflect my sex as being male. And so I really think it's used as almost like a, a, a kind of double speak, a way to um, confuse people
0: mm-hmm. so that
1: they don't understand what's going on. So that they think, oh, well, if somebody feels that way, we should probably be nice to them because that must be really hard instead of saying what does that even mean because when when the trans activists talk about gender they suggest that um, the really uh, kind of uh, regressive stereotypes of male and female are what define male and female so um, according to their standards I still would be considered a male because in a lot of ways I don't um, ascribe to those stereotypes at all. Um, (laughs) Most of us don't. There are very few people who 100% um, feel that, you know, Barbie doll feminine, which I find really offensive to suggest that like being a female means you're a Barbie doll and being male means that you're like GI Joe, that those are the two extremes. And, and, and what they say is that most people are like Somewhere in between. So they're gender nonconforming or they're um, gender fluid. And so they're really, they're using these terms, I think, just to confuse people and to try and exert control over them. Because if you can convince people that somebody is assigned a sex rather than born a sex, then you've basically just convinced them of a lie. And again, we talked about how powerful lies are. So I think that they're just using this term gender. I mean, originally, gender was um, used to, to define whether or not um, like pronouns are gendered, you know, he, yeah. she, gendered pronouns. Um, in a lot of the Romance languages, there are words that are gendered that have, you know, for whatever reason, they're considered, they have a male or a female um, ending. Mm-hmm. But, but in reality, I don't think gender has any meaning, <laughs> really. Mm-hmm. Um, we basically were born either male or female, and and that's, that's kind of the biological reality of it. Mm-hmm.
0: So the American Psychiatric Association defines gender dysphoria as involving a conflict between a person's physical or assigned gender and the gender with which they identify. So what does that mean?
1: That is a great question. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and if you look
1: further into the definition, again, they use these very um, kind of, old-fashioned ideas about what it means to be a girl or a boy. So if you have a girl who's playing with trucks and who likes to play with the boys, who's a typical tomboy, that could now be considered a transgender girl because she is not um, adhering to the gender stereotypes. that. And, and for, for a psychological manual to suggest this is really concerning. And so one of the things that I want to emphasize is that gender dysphoria Um, I think it's a, I, I actually, the, the term used to be gender identity disorder. And I think that that is a reasonable diagnosis. In my case, that made sense because I had all this help self-hatred and I was trying to like, um, I was trying to act differently and, um, you know, do everything I can to not be a girl. And that, that's a problem. When you have someone who hates themselves so much that they want to be something different, that is a psychological issue mm-hmm. that needs to be addressed. So it's good that they had that as an identity issue. But gender dysphoria, is a, is, it really makes no sense because um, anybody who's had kids knows that boys and girls don't conform to these incredibly restrictive ideas of yeah. what it means to be male and female.
2: Right.
0: Mm-hmm. It's so true.
2: I even um, read a statistic I think that said something like "Not 98% of children who struggle with their sex as a boy or a girl actually come to accept their sex by adulthood.
1: Well and so- that's really important. Yeah that's actually um, research um, uniformly shows that the vast majority of kids who have gender dysphoria or gender identity issues or gender confusion will grow up and and resolve that naturally that it that it's um, it's actually quite normal to have those feelings, maybe not quite to the extent that I did, but it's, it's really normal for kids to kind of go through these feelings. You know, if you have um, a boy who suddenly is really interested, maybe in flowers, that might, that boy might have the sense of like, Oh, I wish I was a girl. Cause then I could, you know, I could have flowers in my room and nobody would think that was, you know, Funny, um, or if you have a girl who really wants to play in the mud and get dirty, she could be like, "Oh, I wish I were a boy. That would make my life so much easier." So those kind of thoughts are really, really normal for children. But and 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 again, um, going through adolescence is often a cure for that kind of dysphoria because right. the hormones kick in, our bodies change, and the vast majority of people grow up and and accept themselves for what they are. And part of that is just that cognitive development and emotional development where you no longer have that kind of magical thinking that you can be, become something you're not you know there are very few adults who who want to um who insist that they're a cat or who say that they're a firefighter and yet kids right. do stuff like that all the time and mm-hmm. so part of it is just that emotional development of realizing that reality matters <laughs> yeah.
2: right well and i think it's something that we all need to pay attention to in our world. You know, I have a very masculine, very attractive um, husband who just doesn't happen to enjoy sports or, and he's got a gorgeous voice and he sings. And I actually had someone that I loved and trusted, a mentor in my life, um, when we started dating who said, are you, are you sure he's not gay? And I thought, are you kidding me? you know it's just it's and that is a a you know conservative Christian in the church so I think we all need to be careful about the things that we're imposing on our children and on the people around us about these you know very restrictive um, identities I guess that we give each other you know you're either born a male or you're born a female and the rest is up to how God created you right
1: and I also feel like there's really an attack on um Sex roles, and so you know, we talk about gender, but there's also sex roles, and um, I think that feminism has really attacked uh, sex roles. And um, because of technology, we're not as confined to the roles as we used to be. You know, it used to be really difficult for for a male to be a single dad because he doesn't have, you know, he wasn't able to birth a baby, he wasn't able to nurse a baby. Um, now we have you know, some um, blurring of these roles. But I think that, um, I know that I got the message from my liberal mom, who was part of the National Organization of Women, that um, the best way to be a woman was to be a man. You know, that that really we're going to define successful women by, by, by what is a successful man. Yeah. And, and I think that that's done a lot of damage to women because mm-hmm. it's taught them that, you know, being a mother, being a wife, um, volunteering at the schools, all those things aren't important. And what's important is to get that traditional success um, that men used to have, that that was sort of what men strived for. And, and it's, I think it's done a lot of damage to our society because um, little girls get the message that if they have those um, inclinations to wanna be a wife and a mother and do more traditional um, sex roles, that that's not acceptable, that there's something wrong with them and that they're not successful. And I think that we need to reclaim that. And you know, feminism said that men and women are the same, we just have different bodies. And I think that it's okay to say we're different. And that difference is what we should celebrate rather than deny.
2: Right, right. I think it's really important to look at past generations and at a little bit of history, you know, this isn't transgender issues, activism, that's not new. Mm -hmm. Um, And you were on an excellent panel at our last Eagle Council in January, where you spoke with two others who had had similar childhood experiences. And you mentioned the different reactions over the generations when it comes to a child who Mm -hmm. is experiencing gender identity issues. So can you just summarize, summarize that for us and how your experience was different and how we should be considering this in this current generation?
1: Sure, it was it was actually fascinating because it was a panel, I was on it, and Walt Heyer, who was a transsexual, and Lynn Meeker, who's, um, whose children have become transgender. And so Walt is probably the generation or two before me. And he grew up at a time when I believe it was um, John Money and um, uh, I think it was Stanley Bieber. There were this, there was this movement and it came out of um, Kinsey's research that, um, that you should go ahead and perform sex change operations on people with gender dysphoria. So Walt went through a full sex change operation Mm -hmm. and realized it didn't help. So he, you know, he had this incredible, horrible surgery. you know, right afterwards, he thought, oh, this is wonderful, this is great. But a couple of years later, he realized it was a huge mistake and it didn't actually solve his problems. And so, and, and he was at a time where um, there were a number of people who went through these full sex change operations and the research showed that it didn't help. And so these clinics shut down and they stopped doing these kinds of surgeries and they yeah. stopped suggesting that that was the appropriate treatment. So then, my generation came along, and thankfully, they they recognized my issue as as something that needed to be addressed. And rather than than encouraging me to transition and say that I was a boy, um, you know, the school psychologist came up with just a couple of really simple things, like you know, let's get her in Bluebirds or um, Brownies, which are um, groups for girls, so that she's around girls more. Um, let's show her role models of strong women Um, let's encourage her to uh, they actually put me in a group of kids who had communication difficulties because um, you know i had so much anger and i wasn't able to express it and so um, teaching me how to how to how to um, communicate better and you know all those really simple things were really helpful and then i went on to get therapy that helped me to identify um, you know, this cognitive dissonance that I was having and helped me to accept myself as a girl, helped me to um, kind of, I wouldn't say resolve the trauma, but to understand how much it had impacted my life. Right. And then you have Lynn, who is this generation and her children.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And this generation now is told that if you feel like you were born in the wrong body, you were born, you you are born in the wrong body. If you, even, um, if you even have any sense that you're not the sex that you are, then then you're right. So it's basically taking somebody's feelings and putting them as the most important thing, putting them over reality or fact. Mm-hmm. And so her kids have actually fully transitioned. And one of the things that she talks about that I think is just incredibly heartbreaking, and I hear this from a num- number of moms, that when a child starts on hormone therapy a, a girl child starts on hormone therapy, her voice changes forever. And Lynn talks about the fact that she'll never hear her daughter's voice again. And in some ways, it's it's like the death of a child because the child you know is completely changed. Um, talking about Rob Hoogland's case, uh, the man up in Canada whose daughter was put on testosterone at the age of 14, her voice will always now be deep. And she he actually told me, that when he calls to talk to his kids, he's got a, a son and a daughter. He doesn't know if it's which child it is when they answer the phone, because her voice is permanently changed. Um, she's growing facial hair now, and now is at risk for heart disease and other very significant health issues as a result of being put on these uh, these medications. And so it it just strikes me that we sort of had this one generation that that dealt with it by by, um, surgery, and then they realized that was a mistake. And then my generation, I was sort of in that period where they realized that this was a mental health issue. And then we're back to thinking that we should go ahead and, and encourage children to transition. So I think part of it is that there are cycles that we have, um, you know, in in mental, you know, I, I have a lot of, I'm, I, I'm actually to the point where I don't encourage people to go to therapy at all because I'm so, you um, disgusted with (laughs) the American Psychological Association and the stories that I'm hearing. Um, This is a little bit off topic, but there are so many um, parents who have taken their children who are having some kind of um, dysphoria, who are having some kind of depression or anxiety about their sex. And that therapist has completely affirmed that child. And um, the child is now starting medical treatments to transition and the parent just says i should never have taken my child to therapy because Mm -hmm. this is what happens and so therapists are no longer acting in the best interests of children and that's important for people to know and i'm hoping that this will stop i know that there's legislative uh, efforts now in place to try and stop uh, doctors from giving this transgender treatment to children and i'm hoping that those will pass and that we'll, we'll get through this without too many children being damaged. Yeah. But I am concerned by how, um, how entrenched it mm-hmm. is now in society that we have teachers who are um, undermining parents' authority and allowing kids to transition at school without their parents knowing it, that we have doctors who are willing to give these medical interventions without parental consent, that we even have clinics in schools now that allow access to this kind of um, intervention, and this we we basically have a whole generation of children that that's going to be damaged by this ideology, and and I, I sure hope that we'll come back from it, but it's hard to imagine a pathway out of it when I see how much control and how um, how deeply ingrained this is now, and how quickly it happened. You know this. This is something that, you know, it wasn't even on my radar until a year and a half ago. And now it's um, it's so entrenched that that people are, are fine with the idea of someone getting their birth certificate changed. And even children now are getting their birth certificate changed. So you can have a child in say Florida who, who whose parents say they're transgender, the child may not even be transgender, and get that child's birth certificate changed as, you know, um, as a little kid, like three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, they move somewhere and that child then goes to school and as the opposite sex. And there's really nothing anybody can do about that because the birth certificate says that that child is the opposite sex. And so if you're a little girl and there's a boy in your restroom, there's nothing you can do about it in a lot of these cases. And if you're going on a school trip and are gonna have overnight lodging, there's a chance that your chaperone might be the opposite sex and there's nothing you can do about it or that you're gonna share a room with the opposite sex and your parents won't even know about it because all of this is now covered up and protected in schools.
0: Well,
2: on schools, you know, you mentioned There was a group of parents that we highlighted uh, in Wisconsin who sued their school district because they refused to change a policy um, That allowed the district to conceal all of this from parents. So how do parents find out what's going on in their schools and how do they they fight this
1: yeah, it's 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 so insidious, and most parents have no idea that their child could be going to school as young as five years old, and the teacher might have a backpack under his under her desk with a change of clothes for that child, and be calling that child by a different name, allowing that child to go to the the rest the opposite sex restroom, and being called pronouns of the opposite sex parent has no idea this is happening and and to me that's so disturbing so a couple of things I tell parents to to, first of all if they can to homeschool I really think we're at a point now where if you can homeschool that that's the best solution because then you you're able to um, shield your child from this this um, ideology some parents don't feel like they can do that and if they can't do that I encourage them to be in the schools to drop in The schools and to spend time at the schools to get to know the teacher Mm -hmm. to um, to insist that you see the curriculum and not just the sex ed curriculum because this now is being introduced in all kinds of areas um, in math even math science history. This ideology is being pushed. A lot of times, it's being pushed um, in the library. We'll have all these books that introduce kids to these concepts. Um, there are even schools now where kids as young as kindergarten have to say which pronouns they want to use. And so, rather than the teacher calling a boy a boy and a girl a girl, the child now decides what pronouns they want to use as young as kindergarten. So, really, you need to—if you're a parent—you need to be in the school and not not just sort of at a prescribed time where you're maybe helping with an activity, but drop in and spend time there and talk to your child, talk to your um, child children's friends, talk to other parents. And I would really just suggest coordinating with other parents and forming A Coalition so that there's somebody in the school all the time. There's a parent in the school keeping an eye on what's going on. Also go to school board meetings. A lot happens at those board meetings and you have no idea because they don't and they don't publicize it. And I would also suggest people do a freedom of information request at their local school districts to get information about what the transgender policy is so that you know what the policy is at your school.
2: Very good.
0: Oh, thanks for those tips. Definitely. You know, it's good to know where to at least start. Oh, and the, the final thing, um, don't let your kid go
1: to the school counselor, um, <laughs> which which just sounds horrible. But if your child is having some issues, find a pastor, find a family friend, find a, you know, someone who you have um, confidence in to let them talk to. But the the counselors at the schools now um, by and large have really bought into this ideology. So even if your child is just going in for, you know, for maybe like a, a curriculum check, go with them. If you're, if you're, if for your sure. ti- you know, when your child is being scheduled for classes, go with them and otherwise don't let them go to that school counselor because you have no idea what they might tell your child.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and we know that not all schools, this isn't happening everywhere and that there are some really good principals and teachers and counselors out there, but what you said is exactly right. Your involvement, your engagement with these individuals and authority over your children during the day, you have to know them and know what's going on.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's hard because even in schools where you have some counselors or principal or teachers, who, who aren't buying into this. There's so much pressure now sure. and teachers are losing their jobs if they're not willing to enforce this ideology. So it's getting harder and harder to find schools where, um, where this isn't um,
0: kind of taking over. Mm-hmm. How do you re- recommend that our listeners talk to their children about these issues? That is a really good question.
1: Um, I think that it's important for parents to talk to their children about this. I think if you pretend like it's not happening. It could backfire. I think being really honest with them and um, explaining to them that there are uh, people out there that are that are trying to hurt them by trying to convince them of things that aren't true. I think that this is where having a really good foundation in religion helps because you can teach them that God loves them the way they are and there's you know they're born male or female and i think that that can be really helpful and i also think that um listening to how they talk and if they start um, using the kind of language of the transgender movement to really get more involved um, if they start saying things like um i i'm you know i'm more of a boy than a girl because i like doing this or if they say well Well, most boys do this or, you know, they start having these kind of general thoughts about what makes a man a man and a woman a woman that are that are kind of seeming to be part of this ideology and also watch their social media um, Mm -hmm. because a lot of these kids are indoctrinated in social media. And I think sitting down with your child and maybe doing social media together would be really great. And it's interesting because um at the same time you don't want kids to be hyper focused on this because yeah. really kids shouldn't be worrying about whether they're a boy or a girl that shouldn't even be part of their concern as a child mm-hmm. and so if you have a child who's maybe not traditionally acting in the in male and female roles to really in, to really embrace that so so, for example, my son really liked cooking at an early age, and that's not something typically boys do, although I kind of think maybe they might but <laughs> but I really you know I really encouraged that i you know i didn't didn't try and judge that and I think that um, that that's something that we need to be really cautious about because I think one of you mentioned that if, if a boy is acting in a certain way, someone, or, oh, it was your husband was acting in a certain way, might be gay. And if kids start picking up on that, like, oh, if I'm a a feminine boy, my parents might think I'm gay. I think I'm just going to be transgender because that way they'll accept me, which is happening in some Christian homes. And so I think it's really important not to suggest to a child that they're gay or lesbian, because really children should not be sexual. And right. so if they are behaving in sexual ways, that means that, that either they've been indoctrinated somehow, or maybe abused, and, and you need to work with that child and really talk to them and figure out what's going on. All
2: right. Well, before we wrap up, I know you've started um, a group called the Compassion Coalition. Can you talk about that?
1: Sure, and I am really excited about this. Um, it was originally Becky Garrettson from Alabama put together an Alabama Compassion Coalition in order to bring together a whole bunch of organizations um, to support the legislation to to stop these medical interventions for kids. Mm-hmm. And and so I asked her if she'd mind if, if I made it go national and she said, sure, that'd be great. And So it's actually international now. And yeah. it's um, the idea is that it's a you know, it's non-denominational, it's not religious, it's completely secular um, and it's for people on all sides, um, all kinds, you know, we have, we have radical lesbian feminists and we have Christian conservatives and everything in between. And the idea is this is such an important issue that we need to work together to, to protect our kids. And, yes. and it's, it can be challenging because, you know, we have people with really different worldviews and really different ideologies. But um, I think that it's been really powerful to work together and to realize that even though we might disagree about everything else, this is an issue that we agree on. And so if anybody's interested in in joining the Compassion Coalition, we have a Facebook group and we also have a a blogger site. And um, the, the most recent thing we've done is to put together a declaration of support for legislation to ban these interventions. And we're trying to get as many signatures as we can so that when legislation is introduced um, next year, that we can show legislators, hey, we've got bipartisan support for this legislation. Um, This is something that crosses party lines. This is about protecting our kids.
2: Well, it's a valuable resource. I joined a while back and I learned something new every time somebody posts something. I mean, just information I didn't even know was out there, things that are happening that I had no, had no idea outside of my little bubble that are that is happening. So thank you for starting that and, and for the way that you're investing. Um, you know, your story is, is powerful and we believe we see how God is using it um, in, a, in a world changing, truly world changing way. So thank you um, for sharing, we appreciate yeah. it.
1: Well, and thank you. Um, I just, I will always have a, have a place in my heart for Eagle forum because, um, it really was that the love and the goodness of the people that I met there that changed my heart. And so I want to encourage people that you might have the hardest hearted liberal atheist that you could believe. Um, and you might think there's no way that they will ever come to Christ there's no way their heart will ever soften. And there is. And so I want to leave people with knowing that, that you can reach people like me, just by reflecting God's love, by, by um, extending yourself to them and accepting them and um, not accepting their behaviors necessarily, but letting them know that they are truly a valuable person. And it, Mm -hmm. and also by showing that that what you're doing is fighting for kids, then I think a lot of people have, um, they don't understand that some of these conservative organizations, their motivation is for health and safety of kids. And if you can can really explain that to people, it will change their hearts.
2: Well, thank you so much. We appreciate your time. And listeners, we appreciate your time. Don't forget to subscribe, share with your friends, and leave us a review. Uh, We'd also love to hear from you. We're on all of the major social media outlets and at engagewitheagleforum.com. From your house to the state house to the White House, this is Engage with Eagle Forum.